it's now my very great pleasure to introduce our guest speaker, um, Robert Klupax, who is the CEO of the Bionics Institute, a world leading, and I really stress that, uh, develop, research and development not-for-profit institute really making a difference in some very hard to treat conditions. So I'll hand over to, uh, to Robert. Thanks, Elaine. That was a short, sharp introduction, so thank you. Um, it is a huge honour uh, for me personally and on behalf of all my colleagues at the Bionics Institute to be invited to speak here today. Uh, I'm not sure you are all members of Rotary and sometimes I think you forget just the impact that Rotary has around the world. So for someone like me who's watched it for my 55 years, to be invited to speak to the illustrious Melbourne branch is a great honour. What I'm going to talk to you about today is a field that you probably know very little about but it is there every day of your life, and that's the field of medical bionics. And what we do, and we're very proud to say at the Bionics Institute, as Elaine said, we think we're a world leader in what we do. And I think what the reason that I was very keen to talk to you today is because I think Australians sometimes don't tell the world just how good we are in certain fields. We think at the Bionics Institute we are a world leader, we want everyone to know about it. We want to enthuse everyone about what we're doing. And we want people to get behind the story of Australians actually developing stuff to treat people for around the world. Many, many people in the room, I suspect, have heard of Professor Graham Clark. Uh, Professor Graham Clark was the founder of the Bionics Institute in 1984, um, who was a man driven by a passion because both of his parents were deaf. He wanted to basically give hearing back to deaf people and set himself out in a mission. And it is great for, for me, having met Graham now quite a few times, to see what he's done has been quite extraordinary. In 1986, he had a dream. Now, I can very proud to say that Cochlear Limited is one of Australia's leading technology companies based on that technology. There's been a more than a million people around the world who've been implanted with a cochlear implant particularly young children who wouldn't otherwise be able to hear anything. And if you can imagine the impact of having a deaf child or a deaf baby who've got their, their hearing back, and the, and the penumbra effect of how many people are affected by that, one million children, one million adults who have been, who've got their hearing back, that's probably about 20 or 30 million people have been affected. It's a gift that Graham's been given, and we're very proud to follow on in his footsteps. But we're not just in the field of hearing at the Bionics Institute. We still are a world leader in that space because of the legacy of Graham. But the knowledge of what we generated from the cochlear implant developments over that time has led us to where we are today. And our vision is to build things on the shoulders of greatness of what Graham Clark has done in the field of cochlear implant technology, learning that from that technology to lead into medical bionics, to treat a number of other diseases other than just deafness. So who we are? We're a relatively small group of people. We're based just up the road here in East Melbourne. Uh, just down the road from the Iron Ear Hospital is one where we have our headquarters. But our major laboratories, our engineering laboratories, are located within St Vincent's Hospital. And that's one of the great joys of our life because we interact with clinicians every day. We're a very practically orientated medical research institute we're not doing curiosity-driven research. 
although we know, accept, and in Melbourne it's incredibly important. We're very practically orientated. We spend every day talking to clinicians, identifying their problems, and then working with engineers to try to find solutions. Again, the legacy of Graham Clark is such that he realised to actually get long-term solutions to major problems, it's never just one person. It's the creation of a team. Melbourne has a world-leading uh, reputation for medical research per se, particularly for drug discovery, molecular biology, cell biology. What makes us a little bit different is we've brought together this quite disparate group of skill sets. We have physicists, we have biologists, we have neuroscientists, we have engineers, we have software developers, we have administrators, clinical trial assistants, we have a series of neurologists, cardiologists, anaesthetists, all working together, not always full-time, but working together in a multidisciplinary format. And that's why I think we've been successful. But just to give you some background, um, I, I, was, I was laughing when I came in here. I usually give this speech accompanied by lots of PowerPoint presentations, so um, there's a few videos that you're going to miss out on. But one that always draws a bit of a laugh when I'm in an audience like this and they hear the word bionic, and looking at the relative demographic around here, I think you remember the show The Bionic Man, Steve Austin. Uh, I remember going on 774 two years ago and they put that theme music on behind me, which is quite embarrassing. <laughs> I'm certainly not Steve Austin, as you can see. But the Bionic Man that you saw in the 1980s, uh, in many regards, is the forerunner of what we're doing. We don't create robots, we don't create new limbs per se, but everything else that you saw in Steve Austin, he had super hearing, super eyesight, being able to use better, better things to make people better or to improve them is what we're about. But the term bionics is something that I know people in this room are thinking, what does it actually mean? Typical complex science is actually very simple. Biology, bionics is two, word, two words brought together, biology and electronics and the interface of those two is basically bionics. And what do we try to do? Bionics is all about trying to use electrical systems or record electrical systems in a biological system to improve outcomes. And prima facie for us, that's simply trying to stimulate the nervous system to have effects from the body to improve them. And we work in a number of areas. I'll come to what we work on but again, I'm missing my slide, but so you're going to have to visualise this. But one of the things when I joined the Institute and I realised the power of bionics, I saw a video and I met people who came across to lecture at the Institute who came from Paris. This group had developed a, a, a muscular stimulator. They had adapted it to stimulate the spine of people who had a broken back who were paralysed. By manipulating that electrical stimulation system of the back of these people, uh, we now have people walking, unaided, simply by having an implant put in their spine. They talk into a wristwatch on their hand and they're able to walk. They can't walk very far, but you can imagine the impact of those people's lives and that is continuing to go on. Another technology which we, it's just another example that's emerged very recently, is if you've ever seen anyone in a wheelchair, and I think someone mentioned before, Robert, about end of life, motor neuron disease was, was mentioned. Uh, debilitating diseases like that where people who've still got their incredible brain function but their body has let them down. They can't talk anymore, they can't move anymore. 
but they still want to communicate. The ability to harness using implant technology that electrical engineers have developed, working with neurologists to be able to implant them into the brain, collect those signals from the motor cortex on the brain, and be able to send the message directly from your brain, bypass the register of your body, and send that to a computer, is actually happening right now. And it's quite extraordinary. I, we have the video, you'll see a woman in a wheelchair who can't move, and she's actually writing a text to somebody from the implant in her head, simply by sending the message. Now that is incredible, that's bionics, and you might think, well that's something that happens overseas, it's not gonna happen in Australia. I can tell you, two alumni from the Bionics Institute seven years ago, while part of the issues with that approach is you need to open up the skull, implant an electrode in the brain, and that's how it works. Two alumni of the Bionics Institute working with clinicians at St Vincent's Institute six years ago said, that's, we don't want to do that. We know the field of stent technology where they put a little stent up through your arm into your heart. They said, why can't we do that in the brain? And so this group of clinicians and scientists have developed a device called the Stentrode. It came out of Melbourne. It's now in clinical trials at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. And it's quite extraordinary. It's an implant that is put through a vein, finishes up in the vein in the head, and that can collect brain signals to allow people to communicate like I spoke before. That's happening right now. We're not doing that at the Bionics per se at the moment, but that's just an example of what's happening, and it's happening right here in Melbourne. But our focus at the Bionics Institute is more to focus on the diseases due to ageing. And you might think, well, why would I bother doing that? But as you know, the ageing of the world is getting much more acute. And one of the things that I wasn't aware of till recently, but statistically, by 2050, it's estimated that more than 22% of the world's population will be above the age of 60. In key, key parts of the world, such as Europe, it's 35% of the population by the age of, by 2050, will be greater than 60. Uh, in Australia, it'll be 23%. In America, it'll be 28%. And I know in this room, I'm getting very close to that magic age myself, and I'm thinking I'm pretty fit, but unfortunately, the body breaks down. And the reason that we work in the fields I'm about to take, take you in, because they're really linked to the ageing process. So we're focused in six major areas. Uh, we work in the field of hearing loss, which is a legacy from Graham Clark, but we've learnt a lot more about how to treat that. We work very much in the field of human movement disorders, particularly Parkinson's disease. We work very heavily in the field of epilepsy. We work very much in the field now developing new devices for stroke treatment. So we won't treat people with stroke but as you know, post-stroke is, is the consequences. So many people lose their upper limb function post a stroke. And that's debilitating. They can still move around, they can still talk, but they can't use their arms and legs anymore. We're using electrical stimulation to re-stimulate parts of the brain to accelerate that recovery. A disease that probably, and I hope no one in this room has, but I suspect statistically someone or a couple have, is a group of diseases known as inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, otherwise known as Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And that's a disease of the nervous system which causes terrible gut inflammation. And the reason we work on that is because people primarily get that at a young age. It can be mediated by the nervous system, but people never recover from it. And their lifestyle is terrible and they, and they die very young. And although we're not working on it uh, as a core, 
One of the things our institute's very proud of is that 10 years ago we were part of the consortium that developed the Melbourne-based bionic eye. Uh, we are part of the group doing all the clinical testing of the patients who have been currently implanted, and that's an area that we think is of major importance to the world. To put that in perspective, I mentioned those six areas and I mentioned ageing. Again, this room, an interesting demographic, but I just wanted to put it in perspective for you. In the field of hearing loss, the key area that we work in, one third of the world's population between the ages of 65 and 74 will have severe to moderate hearing loss. And you might say, so what? Uh, that's, as you all know, the less you can hear, the less you can communicate, the less you communicate, the more isolated you get, the more isolated you get, the more depressed you get. And what was interesting to me, having joined the Institute two, two and a half years ago, there was a major long-term epidemiological study that came out of Johns Hopkins University looking at the risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. And the number one risk factor for Alzheimer's disease was hearing loss. And so we all talk about the big, the big issues, diseases. We worry about heart disease, we worry about cancer. But as we're all living longer, we need to have quality of life. And as you've probably got friends, family, as I have, with dementia, Alzheimer's disease, or living in nursing homes where loneliness kicks in because they don't have the ability to hear, this is a major, major issue. It's a silent epidemic, pardon the pun, that's occurring. And so what we're trying to do is work on devices to improve hearing, one, but more importantly, develop drug therapy using some of our devices and nanoengineering to overcome that. To put that also in perspective, again, as we live longer, I said a third between 65 and 74. If you live beyond 75, there's a one in two chance that you will have had severe hearing loss. And I shouldn't put down my good colleague who introduced me, who created one of the world's great hearing aid companies. But when you get to that age and you say, I'll get a hearing aid, a hearing aid only works so well. It only amplifies the sound that you can hear. And it's not good quality sound. When you get to 74, you really can't get a cochlear implant. So you need to have some other therapy to overcome that, and preferably you get that therapy before you've lost all your hearing and you get the downstream, downstream problems. The other areas that we worked in was, because we work so closely with urologists, and we have this great expertise in cadre of people who work in the field of Parkinson's disease. Again, to put that in perspective, and I didn't realise these numbers until a few years ago, right now Parkinson's Australia says there's at least 112,000 people in Australia who have Parkinson's disease. I'm not sure if you've ever seen anyone with mid to late state Parkinson's disease where the drug therapy originally worked brilliantly to improve their, their uh, outcomes. After a period, those, that drug therapy wears off. And you may have walked down the street, be walking next to a person with Parkinson's disease and you may not have seen it, but they physically stop and they are frozen in moment. And their brain is right, they know what's going on, but they're sitting there and you may see people occasionally at traffic lights who cannot get across the road because of those diseases. The other major symptom that you've often seen with people with Parkinson's disease is extreme tremor. And they can't do anything about it and they constantly do like that. So drug therapy has had a major impact on Parkinson's disease up in the last till for a long time, but because drug therapy only lasts so long and people living with Parkinson's disease have a long way to go, people have been looking for alternatives. One alternative to that approach is a concept known as deep brain stimulation, 
Um, it sounds scary, but it's a concept of putting an electric probe into the middle part of your brain to stimulate a particular part of the brain to actually remove the tremor. We are working on that, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But to put that in perspective, again, with ageing, I said 112,000 people in Australia had the disease, or 0.4% of the population, but at, after the age of 65, the numbers rise to 3% of the population. So whether you like it or not, the older you get, you're more likely to get these diseases, and Parkinson's disease can be incredibly debilitating. Epilepsy is another one, again, that we all think is quite rare. We've got this image in our mind of people having grand mal seizures and salivating and going mad. It's actually not quite like that. It can be like that. But again, the dilemma with people with epilepsy, it's much more prevalent than you think. 1% of the world's population will have epilepsy. One third of that, of that grouping won't be able to be treated. And they'll have a condition called refractory epilepsy. And if you can imagine the concept of walking around every day of your life, never knowing when you're going to have a seizure and knowing there's nothing you can do about it, your life is effectively ruined. You cannot swim, you cannot shower, you cannot drive, you cannot work. And if you actually run the numbers through, 0.3% of the world's population who may have a seizure once every one or two or three days, they live with never knowing it. And you think of the seizure as going to be this grand mal salivation, it's not like that. They can be looking at you, and you're looking at them, and they just pass out, and they come back talking to you. It's that 10, 20, 30 second absent seizure means they, why they can't drive. And I'll come back to what we're doing about that. Stroke, don't want to scare anyone in the room, but again, up to the age of 39, you're not too bad. You're only 0.5% of the population will have stroke. But for every decade after the age of 55, your chances of getting a stroke doubles. And scarily, if you're in the ages of between 60 to 79, you have a 5.5% chance of getting a stroke. If you're fortunate enough to make it to 80 plus, you've got an 18% chance of getting stroke. So from a business model point of view, developing treatments for stroke is pretty good in an ageing population. But more importantly for me, I just want, if I'm going to have one, I want someone that's going to give me my life back. And the last one, or two other ones, statistically before I talk about what we do, inflammatory bowel disease, again, um, we are funded at the Institute through the US government to, to, to work on this program. And you might ask, well, why is the US government or the US military funding the program? IBD, or inflammatory bowel disease, is being linked to post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, a number of the young soldiers coming back from Afghanistan and other tours of duty for the US government came back fighting young, fit, strong, within a couple of years have all got this terrible condition. Now, most people with IBD, it's not a disease of ageing per se. Most people will have it by the time they're 30, but it's, it's very poorly treated. It's incredibly painful. And you can imagine sitting in this room never knowing when you, you need to rush to the toilet at any moment in your life. The only way it's treated with, with very toxic drugs, but ultimately you get treated by having your bowel cut out, cut out, cut out until there's actually nothing left. And most of the people will do, who get diagnosed before the age of 30 will die by the age of 55. And we think we can develop, and we are developing a therapy, which I'll take you through in a moment, which we think can overcome that. And the last one is, is we work in, again, not as a core project any longer in discovery, but working on the clinical trials, is the field of blindness. 
particularly blindness linked to a genetic disease called retinitis pigmentosa, which is quite rare. But why we're developing that subset is because the real concern of people in the ageing population is a disease called age-related macular degeneration. And if you are over 60 years of age, you are five, you, you've got a 1 in 20 chance of getting it. Oh. Imagine everyone in this room, someone they know, is going to the doctor to get injections into the eyes and it works beautifully. It doesn't last. There's $20 million worth of drugs being sold for that condition at the moment. We think if we could develop a device that could stimulate the remaining parts of the retina so that people don't need the drugs, we can give them their sight back. That's a dream. We're on that journey and we think we can use medical bionics to do exactly that. So what are we doing in each of those areas? Uh, as I mentioned, in the field of hearing loss, uh, we work closely with Elaine and others in the field of device-related stuff, but we're working very much on developing nano-engineered drugs. Uh, we work with, a, with, the, with clinicians and scientists at the University of Melbourne, and we hope to have clinical trials start at the Epworth hospitals in two years. In the field of Parkinson's disease, Again, we're developing a better form of deep brain stimulation. And while it's a wonderful thing to treat people who are drug refractory, a lot of people won't take, go and get drug deep brain stimulation done for a couple of reasons. One, you need to have a very good clinician who you trust. Secondly, you need to be awake during the procedure. And a lot of people are terrified of actually having someone drilling into their head, which is, right, is what happens while they're awake. And the reason that needs to happen because the neurologist needs to get the feedback to find out whether the electrodes in the right spot. So it's quite confronting. And it's also known that if you have a bad surgeon and he puts that device and he has to hit a site, if you imagine your ears and your nose and put a line down the middle, he needs to hit a spot no bigger than a grain of rice to be effective. If he misses that spot by more than a millimetre on the wrong side, he will cause a major depressive episode and, the, and you'll finish up in tears. So a lot of people don't get the procedure, but when it works, it is miraculous. And so what we're wanting to do is to try to find a way to improve that. And we've been fortunate enough with our knowledge of electrical engineering and monitoring of brain signals to identify a method to identify when that electrode is put in the right spot. More importantly, we can show that that electrode, is, that, that signal is still there when people are under general anaesthetic. And so what we've got is a system to allow surgeons to put an electrode in to the brain of a person while they're asleep and be right 100% of the time. Now we've, we've found this in 200 patients so far. We're about to redevelop a new device so we can start a new clinical trial. And we've just started a company to do exactly that. The nice thing for me, this isn't a group of scientists who came up with the model in rats or sheep or something like this. This was card-carrying neurosurgeons and neurologists that we work closely with. Right at the coalface, we collected those signals from surgery and that's why we've been able to transform it. We work in the field of epilepsy and again, like Graham Clark, who had a dream of curing deafness in his family, we work very closely with the head of medicine at St Vincent's Hospital, Professor Mark Cook, I know Philip Smith met him. His, parent, his father had epilepsy and his dream was to overcome that. What he pointed out to me with epilepsy, the problem is one third of people are refractory and doctors are struggling to find a drug that's going to work on them. The way that the doctors give drugs to people, they count the number of seizures they had. If the seizures get reduced, then they think the drug's working and they stay on it. 
The problem is when you rely upon a patient to tell you how many seizures they have, when you have a seizure it's actually an amnesic effect and so they never get counted correctly so the drugs never get titrated properly. What we've developed is a really quite unique device. It's a, a cochlear implant derivative linked to an electrode that we put just below the skin on the skull. We can collect the EEG signals but in a continuous fashion that signal is sent to an iPhone, is then sent to the, to the cloud and we can monitor signals uh, on a long-term basis. It's taken uh, Mark 20 years to work on it. I've worked in for the last four. We've now got a company up and running. We work with Cochlear. We built a device over the last 18 months. Proud to say publicly that we started our clinical trials and our pa first lot of patients were implanted last week with hopefully great results. And this could change hopefully the management of epilepsy and we've had great support from people in this room uh, for some of that activity. We work in the field of IBD. Well, wind me up. I'm nearly there. Yeah, nearly there. In the field of IBD, as I said, we work with the government. Again, the way we work it, there's a nerve that goes from your head to your gut. We've decided to stimulate that nerve and we can show when we stimulate the nerve, when it hits the, the stomach below the diaphragm, it releases particular factors, cause an anti-inflammatory result, which cures sheep. Uh, we're about to start clinical trials with that device at the Austin Hospital in February. So at the moment, we, we talk a lot in Australia about early stage discovery and how do we commercialise and translate it. What we're very proud of is a very small institute. We have four products in clinical development right now, which is quite unusual. We're raising money to move them forward. We think we can develop a manufacturing industry around them, but more importantly, add and improve people's lives with what we do. I know I've got to finish up, but I just want to say that we've got a group of people who are extremely talented extremely conscientious and extremely passionate, not just to discover, to discover for discovery's sake, but to discover, to translate, to impact on human health. And that's probably what differentiates the Bionics Institute from most other medical research institutes that you know. We don't want to hide what we do, and we're just up the road, and we, we've decided we really want to open up and share with you and, and like, want people to meet what's happening at the coalface. So we organise monthly tours, I know you've come to these lunches and they're much more fun to come to, but if you wanted to come up to the Bionics Institute, let us know and we'll take you through, meet the engineers, meet the doctors and meet our young staff. I think you'll be really excited. Again, thank you for the opportunity to speak here. It's been a great pleasure and an honour. Um, love you to come and visit the Institute. Thanks for the opportunity and wish you all a happy Christmas. Thank you.